All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bull and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at Mo News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bull and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you. And it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Hey, everyone. It is Tuesday, August 30th. I'm Mo Shwanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news, or try to, and read between the lines so you don't have to. A quick reminder that I'll see all of you tonight on Instagram Live, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to answer your news questions. So head over to my Instagram account, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H, and uh, ask away tonight. Uh, It's a special Tuesday evening edition of the IG Live. Okay, there's a lot we're watching today. Let's get to the headlines. The big mission to the moon is pushed back for now. We'll tell you what led NASA to postpone the launch Monday morning. We're getting some new details on Apple's big iPhone announcement next week. I'll have those. We also have a latest check of apartment rent prices across the country, where it's going up and where rent is starting to come down. There are some new details on how you might get that student loan reprieve. The government is announcing how to go about that. We have some of those details. There are a couple of other big international headlines we're watching today out of Ukraine and Iraq. And we'll have the latest on the Oscars. We're just six months away, and apparently they're asking Chris Rock to come back and host it this time. I'll tell you what he's saying about that. But I want to start today with the latest on the hero in Oregon who confronted a wannabe mass shooter. Police are investigating the shooting at a grocery store in Bend, Oregon, Sunday night, where it appears one employee gave up his own life to save customers. Two people were shot and killed and two others were wounded in the incident. Officers also say they found the gunman dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The victims were 84-year-old Glenn Bennett, who is a resident of Bend, Oregon, who was shot while shopping near the front of the store, and Donald Ray Surratt Jr. He was the 66-year-old employee of the grocery store who tried to disarm the shooter as customers escaped the store. We're learning all this from the Bend, Oregon Police Department. A local official described Surratt as acting heroically as he tried to confront the shooter. He got killed in the process. The shooter then reportedly turned the gun on himself. The apparent murderer here is identified as 20-year-old Ethan Miller, who lived in an apartment behind the shopping center where the grocery store was located. Miller has no known criminal history, though he did leave behind dozens of social media posts, which show he had initially intent to shoot up a school, but then decided late to go to the grocery store. He published his first blog post back in June, where he blamed COVID-19 and quarantine for his worsening mental health. He also posted online about his violent intentions, his obsession with weapons. He apparently had an AR-15 style rifle as well as a sawed off shotgun with him, as well as multiple Molotov cocktails in his car. The police found these after the shooting. We're still awaiting more details here, but a pretty remarkable bravery 
on the part of the 66-year-old Donald Surrett in the grocery store, who again confronted the shooter as customers escaped. Okay, now to the space news. Many of us were watching on a Monday morning. There was a lot of disappointment yesterday that we did not get to see the launch of the most powerful rocket ever to the moon. The NASA launch team will reconvene today to discuss options after postponing the launch of Artemis 1 with about 40 minutes left on the countdown clock. This is the mega rocket that is going to go into orbit on the moon with several test dummies. They're hoping to gather data, which will then enable NASA to launch human astronauts uh, on a mission to the moon within two years. This launch, when it finally happens, will be the first launch of the Artemis program. This is the program that will return uh, humankind and Americans to the moon for the first time in 50 years. The last time uh, we walked on the moon was in December of 1972. So what happened here? Well, apparently there was an issue with engine bleed, what they call engine bleed and engine number three. There are four huge engines that will help this rocket to lift off. This is all according to the Artemis mission manager. Super cold liquid hydrogen is cycled through the engine to get it ready for launch. Apparently, it was working in three of the engines, but not engine number three. It was not chilling effectively, had zero chill, apparently. And so uh, they, with 40 minutes to go, decided to uh, cancel the launch on Monday. NASA officials also say there was a secondary issue in a vent valve in the inner tank, and there were weather issues that uh, were happening towards the end of the launch window on Monday. The next possible launch window is this Friday afternoon between 12.48 p.m. Eastern and 2.48 p.m. Eastern. I got several questions from you on how they determine this. It's a complicated procedure. I mean, think about it in terms of uh, drawing a line. Earth is rotating. Earth is also orbiting the sun. The moon is also orbiting. And so they have to basically draw these lines and figure out trajectories, which perfectly lay out how uh, the rocket will launch and hit essentially the right coordinates to get to the moon. So they have a couple windows here. There's a Friday window and there's a Monday window. The big issue that we'll have to determine though today is whether the rocket has issues, the engine has issues, which will force it to move back into a uh, facility to do work on or whether they can do the work on it out there on the launch pad. If they have to move it, it takes apparently three days to move it into a facility and then three days out of a facility to, if they determine they need to fix it off the launch pad. So that'll be the big thing we're looking out for. When they eventually get these engines in order, Artemis 1 will be sent on a 42-day mission, six weeks, uh, with the Orion spacecraft. This is the spacecraft that contains the dummies, essentially they're being tested on, and will eventually contain human astronauts. They're going to travel 40,000 miles beyond the moon, 30,000 miles farther than the record set during Apollo 13. This path mimics the journey that the Artemis 2 crew, human crew, will take in 2024. Their goal here is to effectively run all the tests on everything from radiation to a whole bunch of space factors, and then hopefully are able to use all that data to ensure that humans can safely get around the moon in 2024. The eventual goal is to then land on the moon in 2025. The big issue here is cost. So far, the rocket, though it does use some parts from the old retired space shuttle program, has cost $20 billion, and apparently each launch costs $4 billion. One of the reasons, they are making sure everything is working perfectly before they launch this. So let's see what they say Tuesday, and uh, let's hope that we will see a launch ideally on Friday or in the Monday launch window. It's unclear what the launch windows would be beyond Monday if they cannot launch it by next Monday. Okay, let's stay in Florida here and head slightly south down the coast where the Justice Department told a judge on Monday that it has already completed its review of potentially privileged documents it obtained during that search warrant of Trump's home earlier this month. Trump's legal team had filed a motion last week for what's called a special master. This is an independent person who would go through what the FBI 
took from his Mar-a-Lago home, though the Trump legal team filed this more than two weeks after the search. And the FBI is basically saying here, hey, we already went through this. We have our own uh, what's called filter teams that went through the documents. We've returned anything that is privileged back to Trump and his attorneys. This is basically means, you know, anything that we took as part of the search that ultimately we shouldn't have taken. We've returned all that. And so they're basically saying that this idea of adding a special master, which Trump's team is asking a judge for, is basically moot at this point. This apparently happens pretty often. This is something I talked about in an earlier episode uh, this month with Sarah Isker from The Dispatch. She worked at DOJ and she's like, we've always had filter teams there that go through search warrant material, regardless of whether it's a search warrant at the president's home or any other investigation, to ensure that uh, during a search warrant, nothing was taken that uh, didn't pertain to what the judge said they could take in the search warrant. So it will be interesting to see what happens on Thursday. Judge Aileen Cannon, she's the federal judge dealing with this specific request. She actually was appointed by Trump back in 2020. Uh, so she right now still has a hearing scheduled on Thursday, even though the Justice Department is pretty much like, we're good at this point. So we'll see what else the Trump team is asking for here. By the way, there's an interesting New York Times piece about the uh, issues within the Trump legal team. They interviewed David Schoen, who was one of the lawyers who defended Trump during his second Senate impeachment trial. He is quoting the Times as saying, quote, Trump needs a quarterback who's a real lawyer. He adds that it's problematic that Trump keeps rotating lawyers in and out here. The legal arguments put forth by his team sometimes strike lawyers not involved in the case is more about setting political narrative as opposed to dealing with actual legal arguments. Apparently, the story adds that Trump uh, got one of his newest lawyers after watching them on a TV appearance, liking their comments, and then adding him to the team. So there's uh, several observers here who uh, say that the president needs to be taking this much more seriously and needs a uh, A-plus legal team if he's gonna be going up against the Justice Department. Okay, a quick consumer headline for those of you who are renters across the country. The Zumper National Rent Index, we follow this every month, shows the median national one-bedroom rent for a newly listed one-bedroom apartment is now at $1,486, just shy of $1,500 a month. That is up 12% over last August. And that number, about $1,500 a month for a one-bedroom apartment, actually also beats July's average. More than half of U.S. cities are showing double-digit rent hikes with some over 30%. New York City, where I come to you as I tape this podcast, continues to be the priciest place to be a tenant. I need to get out at some point with a median one-bedroom rent up 40% year over year. Those with two-bedroom apartments are paying 47% more over last year. When you break it down in New York City, for those of you who are familiar, Manhattan leads all the boroughs where monthly rent is now above $4,200 a month. That is up 27% over last year. Staten Island is the cheapest of the five boroughs. Following New York City is San Francisco, San Jose, California, Boston, San Diego, and Miami. All those cities currently have an average rent for a one-bedroom between $2,500 and $3,000 a month. The only cities showing a decline right now are Des Moines, Iowa, and Cleveland, Ohio, Des Moines rent is down 12% over last year. Cleveland, it is 5% cheaper to rent an apartment over last year. There's also some cooling in other cities across the South. Nashville and Memphis posted slight month-over-month -month losses. Fort Lauderdale and St. Petersburg, both in Florida, have also seen slight declines over last month. The cheapest cities to rent a one-bedroom apartment in the country, according to this index right now, Akron, Ohio, Wichita, Kansas, Lubbock, Texas, and Shreveport, Louisiana, you can find a one-bedroom on average in all those cities for under $800 a month. 
One other business headline we are watching next week, Apple, as we all know, will be having its big annual announcement and reportedly will be releasing four new iPhone models. It is expected to be called the iPhone 14. This year, it's reported that Apple will likely discontinue the mini model with the 4.7 inch screen. Instead, Apple could offer two sizes, one with a 6.1 inch screen and one with a 6.7 inch screen, each coming in a standard model and a pricier pro model. There's a couple things we're looking for here. They're all expected to get new upgraded, what's called A16 processors and cameras. The camera bump is expected to get a bit larger. Since 2017, iPhones have also included a space at the top of the phone's display. This is the little black section up top for the face ID system. Apparently that's gonna get slimmer and the cutout will be uh, even smaller, meaning you'll have an even larger display on these new iPhone 14s. Apple is also expected to release a new always on screen display. You know, right now, if you have an Apple iPhone, you can basically turn your flashlight or camera on. Allegedly, you will also be able to have new widgets on your always on screen. This is your lock screen that'll show weather, battery life, and potentially other options. The big question now, given inflation, is how Apple will price its iPhones. How expensive will it get? That'll be one of the big questions we're waiting for on September 7th. And by the way, if you're now planning on getting a new iPhone, all of us will be seeing, iPhone users that is, new software, the iOS 16 system. This is exciting. Apparently iOS 16, this to me I think is the highlight, will let you unsend or edit iMessage text messages as long as you catch them within a few minutes of sending. That'll be a big deal for a lot of folks. One more thing, if you're an iWatch person, apparently there will be the eighth new version of the iWatch coming out, the Apple Watch. One of the things Apple is considering adding, and we'll see if they ended up adding it, is a body temperature sensor on the new devices, which could help with fertility and sleep tracking. Apparently, uh, this sleep tracking feature will be advanced enough to potentially track and determine whether you have sleep apnea. Okay, a couple stories we're watching on the international front. I want to start in Ukraine, where Ukraine made it official on Monday. They said they have launched their long-awaited counteroffensive. This is using all of that new Western military aid, including the billions of aid the U.S. has given them. They're trained up on it, and they are ready to take back their country. Russia has officially taken somewhere between 20 and 25% of Ukraine over the last six months, and the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the plan is to be able to take back many towns and cities that the Russians have invaded over the course of the past six months. The big area we're watching is the Ukrainian South. Russia has captured a huge swath of Ukraine's Black Sea coast, and that is where Ukraine has begun shelling. Uh, and in particular, Ukraine is looking to take back the major city of Kherson, Kherson from the Russians. That is the biggest city the Russians have taken from Ukraine over the course of the war. So Ukraine put out a big statement uh, Monday saying they struck more than 10 sites in the past week that, quote, unquestionably weakened the enemy. Uh, Russia has acknowledged the new offensive, but said it, the offensive by the Ukrainians has totally failed and they suffered significant casualties. This has been murky in this war. Both sides are always saying they're winning. So we'll see what unfolds here. Western military observers are hopeful that the Ukrainians can start to make some inroads and start to take back some of the territory that Russia has captured over these past few months. The two countries have been at a stalemate uh, for a couple months now. Russia has been trying to continue its push in the east in an area called the Donbass, but uh, ultimately the past two months have been pretty stagnant this summer. One of the areas we will be watching fighting is around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. U.S. officials tell Foreign Policy magazine that the Ukrainians are going out of their way not to strike the plant as they try to retake it. The Russians have controlled that plant. This is the largest nuclear plant in all of Europe. They have effectively been operating it. They have Ukrainian operators. The Russian military have uh, occupied it since the spring and have been overseeing the plant. The big concern in recent weeks is that the Russians have been shelling 
in and around the plant. And so the Americans, the Europeans, international observers have been trying to tell the Russians, please cut it out. U.S. officials tell Foreign Policy Magazine they believe the safest course right now is for Ukraine to shut down all the reactors. Unfortunately for the Ukrainians, they don't have control of it right now. They do have Ukrainian operators, but the Russian military is controlling the plant. So it's up to the Russian military as to whether they will shut down the entire plant. And of course, because of its size, will the Ukrainians be capable of compensating with other electrical sources if the Russians ultimately shut down the plant for safety reasons? The big thing we're going to be watching there is international observers from the International Atomic Energy Agency and the UN are set to inspect the plant to ensure it's being operated safely at some point this week. Okay, I want to head down to Iraq here, which we have not done an update on in a while. It's been relatively stable by Iraq terms. We are nearly 20 years since the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, and there's still a couple thousand troops there. The thing we're watching is in the last couple days, it has really sunk into deep political chaos uh, and some military fighting in the streets. This all comes after a very influential Shiite cleric, Muqtada al-Sadr, announced he was retiring from politics. He's been pushing his supporters to uh, protest in Baghdad. At least 12 of them were shot and killed by government security forces while protesting in recent days. The UN mission in Iraq and several foreign countries are calling for uh, their officials to leave Iraq, given all the chaos right now. So this is what happened. Sadr announced on Twitter that he is retiring from politics. That sent hundreds of his followers into the streets of Baghdad, where they breached concrete barriers that guard the green zone. The green zone is the protected area in central Baghdad, where parliament is, Iraqi government offices are located. Uh, the U.S. embassy is also located in that green zone area. They got into it with government forces, which is what led to the uh, violence and led to several deaths. That is continued to escalate on Monday night. While political turmoil and street protests are pretty common in Iraq, it's a very combustible mix, inter-Shiite divisions, uh, divisions between the Shiites, the Sunnis, and the Kurds. I can get into that in a second. Um, the fact that this is now open warfare in parts of Baghdad could mark a pretty dangerous phase, according to people who've been observing Iraq for a while. Some background here that Iraq's population is split essentially into two Muslim sects, the Shiites and the Sunnis. Back in the days of Saddam Hussein, this is more than 20 years ago, Saddam was a Sunni. The Shiites, which are a majority, were oppressed. Upon the U.S. invasion and the uh, takeover uh, of Iraq and the handover back to the Iraqis, the Shiites essentially took charge of the government. The issue now is the Shiites are now fighting among themselves. This is Muqtada al-Sadr's group, as well as a Shiite group that is more allied with Iran, another Shiite majority country. So there is this squabble now between the various Shiite political parties. Iraq has been without a government since elections last October. That left the country with a caretaker government as they negotiate how to basically rule here. Sadr has been part of these negotiations. Uh, he's been having fights with the other Shiites, the Iranian Shiites, as well as the uh, Sunnis and the Kurds. He's been trying to develop an alliance there, uh, but ultimately has decided at this point to pull out of politics, which has then left this huge vacuum leading to the violence. You might remember Muqtada al-Sadr's name. His name was on the militia that fought U.S. troops back during the American occupation of Iraq. This is after the war in 03-04. He comes from a family of revered clerics. In fact, his father was assassinated by Saddam Hussein and is considered one of the most influential Shiite religious leaders. After that whole early period, about 15 years ago, he essentially went uh, fully into politics. And so he's been in the process of forming this government, which has then led to this turmoil. He's done this thing in the past where he's pulled out of politics saying, guys, I'm, I'm done here, and basically tried to see if his supporters wanted him to come back. So we'll see what happens here. 
But this violence is something to watch very closely here. Uh, there's a lot of folks who do not want this to escalate further. Iraq, again, has been relatively stable here since about 2017, five years ago. That's when Iraq officially defeated ISIS. You might remember that. And so since then, Iraqi politics have always been chaotic here. But the violence that is escalating in Baghdad is something that has a number of folks, including Washington, concerned right now. Okay, back here at home, we're learning more about that student loan relief plan that President Biden announced last week. According to the White House, those who are eligible can start applying in early October. The Education Department's trying to get all the pieces in place to have a smooth operation. They say that once these applications are available uh, on a website in early October, relief will come in four to six weeks after borrowers submit applications. The White House says that the applications will remain available after mid-November, but applying by November 15th will guarantee that you will get relief in 2022. A reminder that the student loan relief plan applies to all those who took out student loans before July of this year and make less than $125,000. They say that they will be going by 2020 or 2021 tax filings. And by the way, if you're a married couple and you file jointly, uh, the number is $250,000 or less. If you had a Pell Grant, you are eligible for up to $20,000 in student loan relief. If you don't have a Pell Grant, uh, but still meet those other criteria, you get up to $10,000 in relief. And this is a question I got from several of you that we now have details on. Anyone who made payments on their loans between March of 2020 and today, when the government paused payment due dates, are eligible for refunds on those payments. Obviously, there's been a pause here, so you didn't need to pay, but some people are like, well, I paid anyway because I just wanted to get rid of them and I didn't know uh, what would happen. Ultimately, while this freeze has been in place for the past two and a half years, if you have been paying your federal student loans, uh, the White House does say, according to this plan, that you are eligible for a refund, so that'll be part of this application. Okay, I want to end here on a bit of entertainment news, and that is the Oscars. We are just six months away from the Oscars. We're actually six months from the last Oscars, the infamous Oscars, and six months away from the 2023 Oscars. And apparently the Oscars are already working on their plans as far as hosts are concerned, and they have asked Chris Rock to host next year's Oscars. We actually learned this from Chris Rock himself. He had a stand-up show in Phoenix, Arizona on Sunday night, and apparently he told the crowd that he was asked to host the 2023 Oscars after the slap heard around the world, but he told the crowd that he has already turned the offer down. And in a way that only Chris Rock would joke, he compared Return of the Oscars to the O.J. Simpson murder trial. If you recall the events of the murder trial, they began with Nicole Brown Simpson, O.J.'s ex, uh, leaving a pair of eyeglasses at a restaurant that then led waiter Ron Goldman to return those eyeglasses to her home. Rock said returning to the Oscars would be like going back to that restaurant. The comedian also said that he has turned down a post-Oscar slap Super Bowl commercial offer. It appears that uh, Chris just wants to move on here, but he still wants to drop a couple jokes about it as part of a stand-up act. All right, I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Don't forget to follow us and review us on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. Every review makes a difference, so I appreciate it. Please also subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. Again, I'll be doing an IG Live tonight where I will take all your questions about the news. I'll see everyone uh, there tonight as well as back here on the podcast tomorrow.